If you will open up your um, copy of God's Word, we'll turn to Psalm 42 this morning. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God, I am a weak man. Please, um, please help me to preach Christ today. Might my own words be set aside and would you be speaking through me? Give me clarity of thought and give um, give me strength and courage. There's so many words to be said and so little power, God. I pray that you would work in power today. It's in Christ's name you pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, I am grateful to the elders for the chance to preach, to share God's word with you. Um, thankful that I've been given the chance to open up one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 42. This psalm has really shaped me and changed me over the time I've studied it. Some sermons are born out of kind of a necessary exposition. You are walking through a book of the Bible, going from one book to the next, and or one chapter to the next, and you happen upon the next passage. And that's fine and good and well, but other sermons are born out of deep within the work that God has done in someone's heart. And that's where this comes from. God has changed me through studying this psalm, and I hope that today I can share some of that with you. Um, It's been so good, and he has been so good to me. So I just want to say something before we begin. This is all going to be pointless 
This is all going to be worthless to your own heart and to your own mind if you don't already know Christ. I know the title of the sermon is Knowing God, so that might seem like a little bit of a contradiction, but if you don't know him in terms of salvation, if you are not saved, then me trying to talk about knowing him better or what in the world a relationship with him actually means is going to be fruitless to you. There's nothing fruitful in pursuing a God who you don't already have an acquaintance with. So I'd say to you prior to this, if you hear nothing else that I say today, please hear one thing. You must call upon the name of the Lord. you, You have no greater business to do with God than to know him, than to have your heart set right with him, and then to be saved. If you are not, that is your first priority. And I think you'll see this throughout the message today, but I think I needed to say it up front because... We're going to be looking at communion with God and the relationship of God to man, and those are all, again, fine and good. But if they're not grounded in our relationship with Christ itself, a true saving relationship with Christ, none of this means anything. So to outline our message today, uh, just heads up, we're only going to look at verses 1 and 2. I got too long to prepare this message, so can't get to the whole psalm. Sorry about that. But... (laughs) Um, Verses 1 and 2 are going to be kind of our outline, but to help us structure it, uh, we're going to look at a quote by uh, English Puritan John Owen. He wrote a fantastic book called Communion with God or Communion with the Triune God, depending on the edition you buy. It's a heavy read, but it's an excellent read, and it will teach you much about what it means to know God. I'm giving you probably page one today. And he has hundreds of pages of gold. Um, so I would, I would absolutely recommend you pick that up if you can. Uh, and his definition of communion with God goes like this. Our communion then with God consists in his communication of himself to us with our return to him of that which he requires and accepts flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. So there are kind of two parts to this. God communicating himself to us, us returning to God that, what he, that which he requires and accepts. But at the end, you'll hear kind of that earlier theme. Both of these are grounded in the union we have with Christ. That's our salvation. Neither is possible without us knowing Christ. So if we look at the text, I'll just read verses 1 and 2 again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So the psalmist starts with us thirsting for God, right? This longing and desire for him. But we must first understand, I think, how we got that. And that's going to be the first part of our... um, our quote from Owen, God communicates himself to us. We can't really thirst for God without knowing him, or without him giving that thirst to us, shall I say. Um, A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, said, in order for man to seek God, God must have first sought the man. That's kind of a very simple way of putting it, but it's true. And I think regardless of your theological tradition, this isn't something that's unique to Reformed people. We often think that we have kind of a, a unique doctrine when we talk about God seeking us or, or God predetermining our salvation. But if you look throughout 
different theological traditions, we may disagree on how it comes out, but everybody agrees that in some capacity, God had to seek us first. God had to do something in order that we would be saved. We can't know him without him first enabling that. So I want to look at a couple of scriptures that show how man is sought by God, how God actually, the transcendent, all-powerful, holy, righteous, you can go on and on about God, how he seeks out us poor little creatures on this earth. Turn with me, um, turn with me to Ezekiel 34. Should be to the right in your Bibles past Jeremiah. The context for, for this chapter is God has basically issued a big, uh, you could say, big reprimand to Israel, to the shepherds of Israel specifically. They have failed to do their job of shepherding the flock of the people of God. Uh, he has put leaders in charge over the church, over the, the nation of Israel, and they have, rather than lead them to God, they have led them astray. And in response to that, Ezekiel says on behalf of the Lord, For thus says the Lord, sorry, this is in verse 11, Ezekiel 34, 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Isn't that amazing? God seeks out his own. God seeks out his sheep, his flock. God is so big and so far off to us that it might seem impossible, and in a sense, without the gospel, it is. The gospel, again, is required for this. But we know from the testimony of the mouth of God that he indeed seeks out his sheep. Those he wants to call his own will be his because he will never let them go. Now, I think that you could be saying, well, that's all fine and good, but what, is, what does this have to do with anything? Like, sure, God seeks us out. I mean, that's, that's nice. How does that work? I think the New Testament fulfillment of these words will help us out. John chapter 10, turn with me there. This is where those words from the time of Ezekiel begin to take action or to happen in history. John 10, verse 14. This is Christ speaking. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That language ought to sound familiar, just like what God said to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel, right? God promised them, I will seek you out. I will find you. And then Christ comes along as the incarnate God, and says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one to do that, what God has, that which God has promised. 
he, he says, I must bring them, the other sheep, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. God promises to gather in his sheep. And this is him seeking us out. The language there is more clear, but the final tie on this, I think, comes in when we look at John Owen's quote from before. Um, Recall the beginning. He says, Our communion with God consists in his communication of himself to us. That's the first part. Us knowing God, having a relationship with God, consists first in God communicating himself to us. Okay. You could replace that word communication with revelation, and it would be more clear with his revealing of himself to us. Our communion with God consists first in God revealing himself to us. Well, how has he done that? This is how God has revealed himself to us. And the amazing thing about it is, Christ, the good shepherd, remember in the beginning of of, um, John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, is also the Word of God. He's the incarnate, enfleshed Word of God. So when God says, I will seek you out, I will find you, I will bring you in because I am the good shepherd, he also says, I will shepherd you with my own Word. That's actually how it happens. This is why we place such a primacy on the preaching of the gospel in our church and in other biblical churches. They, they prioritize good preaching of the word of God because that is how the hearts of the people of God are turned to him. God seeks out his people through his word, so we preach it. So Christ, the great shepherd, also the word of God, this is funny. This blew my mind when I first heard it. I came, like, probably bounding out of my office to tell Katie about it, and she was like, another thing, you know? <laughs> I, I often come out with new discoveries. But this is amazing to me. This is, this is just amazing that God is our shepherd, but God is also the Word. And He uses Himself, as revealed here, to seek us out. Okay, so that's the backdrop for the actual text here. So our text, um, you, you can go back to Psalm 42. Um, I won't make you turn around anymore. Okay. As the deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God has sought us, therefore we can seek him. God longs after us, his own children, therefore we can long for him. So now, I want to say something about thirst. I think that we, of all people, should understand what it means to be thirsty. We're, we live in nearly a desert up here. I was telling a story um, to some friends the other night. It's like when we, we moved here a couple of years ago, and between June, the month we moved here in December, we got an inch of rain. Like, it's dry, and it's hard to stay hydrated. And I think the analogy of water here, which you guys, I know you guys understand that because it's a basic human need, but that's why it's used. It's because it's the most basic of all human needs. Aside from probably breathing, I don't think there's anything else that we need more than to drink water. One day, you probably pass out 
two, three, you're dead. That's it. And we, we are given this, I think, with the intent to paint the most vivid physical picture of what God is actually supposed to be to us. We are to long for God more than he, like he is more than water to us, more than our very source of life. He, he is our life. God is repeatedly described this way throughout Scripture. Um, I want to go, and you don't have to turn there with me, um, but I want to go to John chapter 7. Um, now, I think, I think this is kind of where you could say the rubber meets the road. All right. God is just... Um, God is describing himself as water to us, right? Um, we need to drink from him. We need to be thirsty for him. In John chapter 7, we find Christ again fulfilling these words. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Christ, who is our prophet and who is the word, is also God, the living water that we are to drink. So when David, or, or the psalmist in, in Psalm 42 says, I thirst for God, for the living God, Christ is saying, I can, I can let you drink. Remember the woman at the well? He would say, I am living water. If you could drink from me, you will never thirst again. And that's so true, right? And this brings us to our final, our final piece of this, of this puzzle. All right, so God has sought for us, and we are to long for him because he has sought for us first. We can long for him. How do we do that? The final phrase in Psalm 42 says, when shall I come and appear before God? That's, that's kind of, you could say, the key to all of this. When shall I come and appear before God? Hebrews tells us that we are to come before, or draw near, rather, to the throne of grace, that we may find help in time of need. Coming before God is drawing near to his throne. That's prayer. We've seen kind of the who of this, Jesus Christ. But the how is praying, if you will. And that might sound overly simplistic, but it's true. You can't know God if you don't pray. You can't understand what it means to have a relationship with him if you don't pray. J.C. Ryle um, English Anglican guy um, of some time past. can't remember when he lived, but he said, prayer is absolutely needful to a man's salvation. You must pray in order to be saved in the first place. And I'm not saying that the sinner's prayer you pray when you were five is 
the be-all, end-all. That's not at all what I'm saying. Salvation is much more than a simple prayer, but it has to involve prayer. You have to talk to God. You must confess your sin to him. Prayer is essential. So I want, to, I want us to walk through the life of Christ for a minute and examine our great high priest. If, if David, when he wrote this psalm, says, when shall I come and appear... When shall I come and appear before God? I need to pray in order to drink from my Maker. Who better to look at than Jesus Christ himself? So I'll, I'll say the scripture references as we go along, but don't feel the need to turn along with me. We're going to jump around a little bit. Um, this will be Mark chapter 1. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I once heard a preacher talk about this passage, and he said that he was in the Andes Mountains of um, South America, and he brought a doctor with him one day up to the mountain village. The doctor had no medicine, no instruments, nothing. When the people up there heard that he had brought a doctor, they didn't care that he didn't have anything. Thousands of them flocked and broke down the door of the house where they were staying in an attempt to get to this man. The guy had to put his preaching on hold for three days to interpret for this doctor just to get through all the people who wanted to see him. It says here that in evening... That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. I imagine a scene like that. It, I, I often think of these scenes in the Gospels like maybe a dozen people are on the side of the road or something, and they're there and hoping that Jesus sees them. Likely thousands of people are clamoring to see this guy. I said the whole city came out. And they came out at sundown. And he healed many of them, starting at sundown. And then it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. If there was, any, if there was ever anyone who could say, there's too much ministry to be done for me to go pray. There's too many people that are hurting it was Jesus at that time and at other times. But after probably no more than a few hours of sleep, he got up, maybe even stepping over people's mats as he walked out who were camped out, ready for him to wake up, and slipped away to pray because he knew that he needed to be with his heavenly Father. 
Next, we'll look at Matthew 14. Just have three examples here. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went, upon, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Very similar record here. This was supposedly daytime. He dismissed crowds that he was um, feeding. He had just fed the 5,000. And when evening came, he was there alone. And he didn't come out to the disciples till the fourth watch of the night. And what, what was he spent doing, which is late in the night? What, what did he spend his time doing between then and when he had dismissed the crowd? Praying. By all accounts, he may have not slept at all. He needed to pray. He needed to be with his heavenly Father. How much more do we need to be with our heavenly Father? Finally, um, finally, Luke six. Luke six twelve through sixteen. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. This is perhaps the more remarkable of them to me. He went out to the mountain and prayed all night. He passed the whole night without sleeping in order to pray. And why? Because the next day he called his disciples and picked from them the apostles. Jesus knew that he had to wrestle something out with God in order to know what to do. I think sometimes we misunderstand the humanity of Christ. And this is a perfect picture for us to, to help set the record straight. We, I think, and I often think this too, I think Jesus can sometimes just pull the God card and know what to do because he's God. Maybe. But we also know that Christ was fully man who lived a life on this earth just as we did, tempted just as we are, lived in the same situation that we did, and his example is ours because he is fully man. But he was a man completely and utterly submitted to the will of the Father and to the Holy Spirit. That is the key difference between us and him. We don't submit very well. We're pretty rebellious. But Christ Christ submitted himself perfectly to the will of the Father. And he is a perfect demonstration in this passage to us of what it means to take something by the horns and wrestle it out with God. He, he, he didn't feel the need to go to sleep at any point. Obviously, there was still something more to pray about as the night went on. He wrestled the matter through with God in order to discern the will of the Father. And I'm not asking you to s s search for a thundering voice out of the sky, per se. I'm just... 
I'm saying that we must be diligent to seek out the will of God in our lives. God has promised us that he has given us all that is necessary for life and godliness in his word, but we're powerless to figure it out. We need to pray. We have got to pray. And all these passages point to something even more fundamental than that. Christ needed prayer like this and was sinless. Does that ever blow your mind? We are infinitely wretched and depraved. How much more do we need to pray like this? We have caused to do that twice as often, infinitely more often than Christ did. And yet we don't. How many prayer requests do we have still unanswered that we pray for for years and years and years, potentially simply because we haven't taken the matter to God and wrestled it out with him? I'm not saying he's not sovereign because he can choose to delay an answer to a prayer for decades or for multiple lifetimes. But I would venture to guess that there are a lot of things we leave on the table simply because we don't pray for them with earnestness. James tells us to pray with fervency, like it matters, because it does. Nothing is too big or too small for God. I think to to bring it back to Psalm 42 here, my hope in going through those texts is just to, to show that Christ is truly our perfect model in all things. We can and we should pray as he did. And those are just a couple of samplings. There are many other records of him praying throughout the Gospels, and I would encourage you, you know, go make a study sometime of of Christ and the Gospels and how he prayed. And that's one of the things that um, the book Knowing Christ that Zach talked about earlier, um, that's one of the things it does well. It takes in each chapter an aspect of Jesus Christ and walks through his life and just looks at what is said about him in Scripture and what he has done and what he has showed us through his own life. And prayer is something you can do that with too. I would encourage you, look at Jesus Christ because we have so much to learn from him. We are such a weak people, and we need God more than he did, and I bet he has prayed more than every one of us in this room, myself included. The psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My mom has taken lately, my dad, many of you know my dad is a pastor. My mom has taken lately to telling him, yeah, well, what does that mean on a Tuesday? (laughs) Like, how does this actually work in my life? And I think, I think one way that we need to be conscious of applying this is don't neglect to carve out a time for you to be in prayer, secret prayer. It's a secret, I mean, dedicated, where you're not distracted, where you can spend time with God. You might say, well, I'm more of the kind of pray throughout the day, pray without ceasing type person. 
Yes, and that is all well and good. But if you have not carved out a time to pray, if you have not taken time to get to know God intimately, there is nothing, there's no fuel for praying without ceasing the rest of your day, the rest of your week. Praying without ceasing is born out of secret prayer. And again, the life of Christ is a good example to us in this matter. And finally, I would just say this. Again, about the gospel. We're told to thirst for God and we're told to come before him in prayer. Again, this is founded on our union with Christ in the gospel. The gospel says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel also says that he, he, Christ, lives to make intercession for us, seated at the right hand of the Father, calling us to come to the throne of grace. We can do this because of him. If, if this matter is not settled in your heart, you owe nothing greater to God first and foremost, but also to your own soul than to settle this. Plead with the Lord that he might show you something of himself. To close, I would like to read something by um, British Puritan Hugh Binning. He said, This is the very substance of the gospel. A doctrine of God's love to man and of man's love due to God. See that? God to man, man to God thing again. He says that's the very substance of the gospel. And to them who are begotten of God, the one declared, the other commanded. God's love to us is declared and our love to him is commanded of us. We ought to do it. So much, so that much of the new gospel I'm sorry, so that much of the gospel is but a new edition or publication of that ancient fundamental law of creation. This is the paradox which John delivers. I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, even that which you have had from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. And then he says, finally, this is not a new commandment, but that primitive command of love to God and men, which is the fulfilling of all the law. And yet, new it is, because there is such a new obligation added. The bond of creation is great, but the tie of redemption is greater. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for your unchanging and beautiful gospel. Thank you for this little miniature portrait in the first couple of verses of Psalm 42 of what it means to have a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, for these people, myself, that all of us would follow hard after you that our lives would be transformed by what it means to truly know you. 
God, make us children of light, not children of darkness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.